So a couple of months ago, my daughter's getting ready for school camp and she's kind of getting herself organized in terms of the packing list and pulling all of that together. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the activity briefs for this week of adventure and some of the activities I'm looking at and feeling like, I don't, I don't love some of this stuff. It feels like spiritually, it's just pushing some boundaries that I would rather her not participate in. But that puts you in a quandary because then what do you do? Do you like talk to someone about that? Do you pull them out of that stuff? It's just so awkward and I, I hate that feeling. And I was just sitting down with the Lord and I'm like, what, what do I do? And I feel like, I felt like God said, just, just pray about it. Just pray about it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to fix anything. Just go pray. And so I started praying um, about some of this stuff to do with camp. And as I was praying, it was like uh, the love of God and the concern that God had and the thoughts toward um, all of these girls, not just my kid, but like all of these beautiful girls just hit me like a truck. And suddenly I realized I wasn't really praying about the camp. I was praying about these girls' lives and the lostness that so many of them were in. And I was just weeping on the floor and um, I just felt something that I never had before for those girls as a group. And, and that was really interesting. And then the, the camp came and went and it was completely fine. Like some of the stuff that they were doing just didn't happen and some of it was very low key and it was a great week and they all came home tired and it was fine. It was lovely and I didn't really think about any of that much more. And then a couple of weeks, Sarah back from camp now and um, some of her friends are coming over after school, like regularly. Different ones, hanging out, just looking for a cup of tea and a chat and some Nintendo Switch because they don't have brothers. And um, I noticed that and I felt like uh, it was something to do with what God was up to. I hadn't really connected it to the prayer. Um, but I did something like almost subconsciously. I, uh, I made an assessment. I made an assessment of where these girls were at and I made an assessment of myself and I basically decided that I probably was not gonna be able to do a lot. I could feed them and welcome them and it could be a safe place. But I pretty much discounted God actually doing anything more. And the Lord spoke to me about this really recently and said, when I brought this before you, you asked yourself, am I able to do anything here? Am I able to present the love and truth of God to these girls in any meaningfully, like meaningfully helpful way? And God said, that's not actually what I was asking of you. What I was asking was, are you willing? 
are you actually willing to risk something? Not are you able? And you know, as a church community, we know and we're, we're kind of learning about and growing in our understanding of, of God's mission. And Andy laid the groundwork for that last week with our outline of the Isaiah 61 mission, which I will very briefly recap, which is the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve, bestow a crown of beauty, a garment of praise, and they'll rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Renew ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So this series that we're embarking on is called Rebuilders because that's the work that God has called us into. That's the Father's business that Jesus went about in the power of the Holy Spirit and is still going about that business and calling us in. Father's still rebuilding broken lives and broken families and broken communities. And the question he's actually asking is, are we willing even if it means risk, which it usually does. And if you're anything like me, you often get stuck on the wrong question. God comes and he brings something in front of us and he's like, I'm doing something right here in the middle of your day today, um, in the midst of work or family or school or all the stuff of life. And we so often respond by taking our eyes off God and just looking at what's in front of us and looking at ourselves and feeling like um, what we have to do first is answer, am I able? Am I able to do anything? Because probably I have to sort this thing out first or maybe God's going to have to do something. God's going to have to fix this thing. And then maybe I can say yes. But when God asks, are you willing? It's just, are you willing? Now, you will be no doubt unsurprised to hear that Nehemiah actually speaks into this issue that we have. So we're going to enter in, but as a quick summary in terms of where we're at in terms of the, the big picture narrative, at this point in the Bible, the Israelites had been settled in the Promised Land for many, many years. Not long after that, they split into the two kingdoms, north and south. They um, have a leadership uh, that just goes from worse to worse. The land becomes full of corruption and unfaithfulness to God's covenant. And uh, it's violent and idolatrous and unjust. And finally, God allows his people to be taken into foreign captivity or exile. And the northern kingdom goes to Assyria and the southern kingdom goes to Babylon. Um, and as Andy explained last week, to be separated from their land like that was really, really devastating. Um, it, was, it was a terrible thing. And Jerusalem, which was this beautiful crown, was just lying in ruins. Years into the Babylonian exile, Babylon is actually conquered by the Persians. So there's this change in rulership and we have King Cyrus as the leader. Now, you probably know in your Bibles that Ezra and Nehemiah are separate books, but they're all actually the one scroll originally. So they're one kind of cohesive story. 
and Ezra uh, actually opens with the Lord stirring King Cyrus's heart and beginning to allow um, some Jewish leaders and some groups of exiles to go back to Jerusalem and to start rebuilding. So Zerubbabel goes back to start work on the temple. Ezra goes back to do like a, a spiritual renewal with the people. And then we get to Nehemiah um, and he is gonna be rebuilding something else. So we're going to launch into Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah is uh, he's an Israelite, high-ranking official. He's serving in the Persian government. And this is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. If you want to open your Bibles and read along or switch on your devices. Otherwise, I will read it to you. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people. I confess we've sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. Sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and regulations that you gave us through Moses. Please remember what you told Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, I'll bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honoured. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honouring you. Please grant me success this day by making the king favourable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan during the 20th year, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asked, well, how can I help you? And with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. And then I also said to the king, if it please the king, 
let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. And the king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So before we talk about anything else, I think it's probably helpful to talk about what the big deal is with walls and gates. So we don't, we don't live in walled cities anymore, so we don't have any lived experience of what that means or why it would matter. But an ancient city, any ancient city of this time, was by definition a city only if it had walls. If it had no walls, it had no ability to function as a city. And that really mattered because the city was the, the centerpiece of the larger region. So it had to have to be a city, uh, a leader. So someone who had authority and could provide some kind of form of government and like rule of justice. And absolutely critically, it had to have walls of protection and shelter, which were both for the inhabitants of the city, um, but also for all the people who lived in the lands around the city who would come in through the gates and shelter behind the walls if there was any kind of enemy threat. So the walls were definition for Jerusalem um, and they were protection. So when Jerusalem's walls were all charred and ruined, it was a real disgrace and a grief to the people. It carried a lot of significance in terms of whether Jerusalem could actually function um, for the people as their spiritual centre, but also just their administrative centre for day-to-day -day life. And it was part of their identity. So they saw those walls as um, the way that they could provide shelter and resources for people who needed to come in and be taken care of, people who needed safety, um, people that needed to be saved. So God brings something before Nehemiah. And it's a really troubling report. In the meantime, while all of this has been going on, Nehemiah has been doing really well. He has really good career prospects. He's intelligent, he's influential. He's the cupbearer, which means he tastes the king's wine for poison. But in reality, it's actually quite an important and influential like advisory role. Um, and this report comes to him about Jerusalem. He hears that Jerusalem has been completely exposed and Nehemiah has to decide if he's actually willing to really let this news touch him. So he's got a couple of choice points. He could have said genuinely that that was really sad, but actually he could have done the whole quick assessment thing where he then looked at the mess and it was a significant mess looked at himself and gone, am I able to do anything here? Probably not. I am maxed out with responsibilities. I'm actually doing a really good job. People really need me. 
Um, it's very consuming. What would it look like if I just bailed on the king? And what can I even do? But instead, Nehemiah actually lets this trouble move his heart to the point where he's weeping and he can't even eat. And that grief actually starts to form and shape a prayer within him. It's a, a crying out to the Lord. I get to this point of the story and I don't know about you, but I, um, in my own life, there have definitely been many points where I have been willing enough for God to move me in intercession, willing enough to pray. But then that might be where it all stops. And Nehemiah could have had this genuine moment of intercession, crying out before the Lord and being like, okay, that, that's my bit done. But it's not done for Nehemiah. Nehemiah presumably recognises that God can actually take care of all the am I able questions. He, he's aware of what he needs. He's going to need a massive amount of favour to be released from his position, to get resources, to get protection, to get labour. But he just keeps this thing inside of him until it all comes to a head a couple of months later. And it's like he just finally can't hide it anymore. And the king says to him, what is up with you? And Nehemiah, it says he is terrified. Like the reality of the risk is very, very clear to him. But he's willing. So he shares the truth with the king. He decides to speak up. And then rather than committing the the sin of self-sufficiency, where he tries to work out what he can rustle up, given his position, what, what he's capable of, he actually asks for everything that he needs. He recognises that this is actually about God's heart and God's calling and God's purposes. And the way to go about that work of rebuilding is to ask the king for everything that he needs, including his house all his personal needs as well. So I think it's fair to say that God's mission is usually a bit disruptive. And sometimes it's like a, a proper upheaval, like it was for Nehemiah. Nehemiah does come back to his job. He goes backwards and forwards. Um, but mostly it's little. It's little day-to-day -day disruptions and nudges and opportunities and things that God just brings in front of our path. And if we keep obsessing about whether we're able to actually go, we're just gonna get more and more stuck. We all have stuff. We could say, God, I've got I've got crushing responsibilities. I've got this kid. I've got this marriage. I've got this fear. I've got this history that I just can't seem to escape from. But the truth is that God can handle your life. He can work with all of that. He knows all the intimate details of what you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis.
The Bible says that he is our great help and our counsellor, our carrier of all of our sorrows and disappointments and frustrations and burdens. And we don't have to get ourselves all fixed up and then present ourselves to God for service or we'll probably never get there. He is very capable of healing us and helping us and delivering us as we just walk life out with him and with one another in our family. And if you really want to know the answer to that question about whether you're able, I feel like it's answered pretty clearly in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Which is why the question God is actually asking us is, are you willing? Are you willing to let me share my heart with you, even if it means that you'll be really moved and the, the dryness and the indifference that we all build up around ourselves because of how awful the world is? will actually be shifted? And then are we actually gonna be willing to risk something? My reflection about willingness actually is that sometimes it's the big question, but mostly it's all the little micro decisions that we make. It's like, what actually are we willing to risk? Are we willing to be totally honest with God? Are we willing for him to be totally honest with us? I mean, God can be very direct and surprising. I was sitting in traffic lights a couple of weeks ago and, and God said, Claire, I really want you to let go of your stoicism. And I was like, I beg your pardon. I feel like that's part of my country charm. And by the way, I think it's so woven into the very fibers of my being that I wouldn't even know where to start. And I started unpacking that with the Lord and I felt like he said, actually, it's just an it's just a garment. It's just a piece of clothing that doesn't fit you and you could just take it off. It's not actually helping you and it's not helping us. And as I was, I was praying about that, I felt like the Lord said, it's, it's just a coping mechanism for pain. You know, if you can deny pain and just push through, then it's, that's what you're doing. You actually need to bring the pain to me so that we can face it together and look at it and then I can heal you instead of you just plowing on. Are we willing for him to, to disrupt the status quo in a relationship or risk an uncomfortable conversation? Are we willing to admit to something and apologize and ask for somebody's forgiveness or to forgive somebody? Are we willing to commit to something or to do something that won't bring us any acknowledgement? Are we willing to say, whatever the cost, God? Whatever the cost, just touch my heart. I'm willing to feel some of the pain and the longing that you feel when you look at all these lost sons and daughters, all these devastated lives and people that are just actually in desperate need of God's hope and, and restoration of, of their identity and their purpose and, and community. I'm willing to lean into that and, and risk it and I know that I'm actually meant to be asking for everything that I need.
I think with our Western mindsets, it's, it's always our tendency to like lean toward the most individualistic interpretation and application of what God is saying. But we also know as Viva that God is really into body life and community and family and that actually we want to let God form that in us. So as I was pondering this during the week, I was wondering where have we as a church community seen the love and the mission of God brought before us and then looked to ourselves as a, as a little family and, and made that assessment, that assessment about our own limitations, but also just the challenges of where we live in this place, um, this postmodern, choose-your-own-adventure, hyperactively hectic culture, which feels tough. Um, but we know that's not the real question. The real question is just, are you willing? Are you willing for me to share with you what I really think, says God? Are you willing to risk rebuilding? Whatever that looks like in this place and in this season. Not later down the road when you've got your miracle, not later down the road when everything's been fixed up. Just, are you willing to recognise that I want you to rebuild out of God's very full resources rather than our very limited resources. So I feel like we do, we do have to wrestle through that as individuals, but we also get to explore those questions as a community in the next couple of weeks. Um, and what I thought we would do now is um, just, well, I'm going to pray for us, actually. Um, and if the words resonate with you, then... You can amen in your hearts or you can amen out loud as we go. And then I'm going to talk about a kind of a practical application for us as a community too. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your scriptures are speaking to us, that you are speaking to us in this moment and in this place. You are our God and our Father, and you are in the business of rebuilding. And you are calling out to us. Will you join my children? Will you listen? Are you willing? And God, we want to start repenting of the, the habitual way that we have looked at what's in front of us and looked at ourselves and made an assessment about whether we were able first. And God, as a, as a community and as a part of your family, we want to say we are willing. We're willing for you to share your heart with us afresh. We're willing to listen. We're willing to be moved both in our hearts and in our actions, even if it means it gets a bit risky but we really trust you to lead us and to show us what it means for us as a community right here and right now and for us as individuals. Jesus, we know that we can trust in your leadership, your ability to handle us, to be able to take care of us, to be able to work with us. We wanna be able to learn to ask for what we need 
We really long for the, the people around us to encounter you and, and we want to move in your power and for you to have the glory, God. Amen.